2: You are listening to the Pet Buzz, the ultimate in pet talk radio. Well, we're stuck in another week of COVID-19 shutdown, and I'm finding trying to keep myself busy, trying to find things to do. Well, this past week, I've taken some time to gather up and clean some old but in good condition pet toys, bedding, and apparel to drop off at my local animal shelter. While many shelters are closed or keeping limited hours, They'll open up soon enough, depending on where you live, since May 5th to the 11th is Be Kind to Animals Week. Well, I already have a donation ready to go. So if you have the time, please do the same. Better yet, you know, I have this show as a way to ask you all to help, but you can also do the same thing. So pick up the phone, call a friend and ask them if they have any old toys or toys that are not being used or apparel or bedding that, or towels or anything else that they can donate to a shelter. It's so great because this way more animals can be helped with your donations to shelters. And if you feel a little generous and you can, throw in a little cash in there. And now let's kick off the show with the weekly countdown. Well, in segment four, to date, dogs, cats, tigers, and lions all in the U.S. have been tested positive for coronavirus. But just how was that testing done? Well, veterinarian Dr. Bruce Ake, a national recognized leader in veterinary diagnostics, is talking about animal disease transmission and animal testing regarding COVID-19. Well, in segment three... Veterinarian Dr. Michael Yabsley from University of Georgia talks with us about a new Lyme disease study that reveals which parts of the country are most at risk of Lyme disease infections in dogs and how this study will help track and predict Lyme disease in people. So in two in this portion of the show, I'm going to give you the celebrity pet scoop and Dr. Fleck is going to talk about ear issues. And in segment one. Medical detection dogs have already been trained dogs to spot the scent of malaria, cancer, and Parkinson's disease. Researchers from the United Kingdom believe that specially trained medical detection dogs could help identify COVID-19.
3: And joining us today to discuss this is Dr. Claire Guest, the Chief Executive and Director of Operations for the charity Medical Detection Dogs. Her organization trains dogs to identify Human diseases by odor. Greetings, Doctor Guest, and welcome to the Pet Buzz.
4: Greetings, Doctor Flack. Like. Good to speak to you. So, and what you... about me? They always forget me.
3: Oh, darn! <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, <Very> sorry, Charlotte. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, easily forgotten. <laughs> okay, well, let's continue with Doctor Guest. Okay, all right. So, Dr. Guest, why do you think that your medical detection dogs can sniff out the new coronavirus and and COVID-19?
4: Well, over the last 10 years, we've gathered a huge body of evidence, which has all been published in peer-reviewed journals, that dogs can smell um, every single disease that we've trained them to, to detect so far. Now, our work started in cancer many years ago and published in the British Medical Journal in 2004. The dogs could detect the odour of human bladder cancer from a urine sample. But since that time, we've done a huge amount of work and we've published in uh, dogs detecting blood sugar levels in type 1 diabetics. Um, core cell levels in people with Addison's disease. We've trained dogs uh, and, and worked with dogs who have been trained to detect malaria parasite in individuals that have have malaria but are asymptomatic, so this is before they have any any symptoms. We've trained um, pseudomonas-detector dogs. This is a respiratory bacteria, and we found that dogs can very reliably detect it um, against a whole range of other bacterias. And we've also uh, trained dogs to detect Parkinson's disease. So there's a really good reason why we believe they should be able to detect COVID-19.
2: It's actually interesting because it sounds like that every single one of these diseases that you named has its own special smell.
4: Absolutely, that's exactly what we're finding. So we know us humans have got our own unique unique odour and that comes from our DNA and the dog can be trained to track us across many miles as we know. Um, what we've known over the last 10 years is that when our body is affected by disease, that our odor changes slightly and a dog with his incredible sense of smell is able to detect this change.
2: So in order to do this study, what organizations are you working with and how are these special dogs being trained and who are they?
4: So well, we've got the Super Six as we're calling them, so there were dogs that were all, were destined to go on to other studies, but um of course with the COVID-19 crisis we've now sort of, um uh, reallocated them onto this work. What's incredibly important with this type of work is that you work with really good collaborators. And we're very lucky to collaborate with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and the virologists there. Because what we've got to make sure is that when these samples come to our training centre for the dogs to learn, these have got to be safe samples. So they've got to be deactivated dead viruses. So there's no risk to the dog, no risk to the handler. What the dogs will do is learn learn the task so they will learn on actually something that's been um, in into by the person with COVID-19 or um, a healthy a healthy volunteer and they'll start to learn the difference in odor and it's a bit like becoming a specialist wine taster when you first learn you're perhaps learning the the country of the wine then you go to the region then you go to the vine and the grape now when the dogs know the grape the odor of COVID-19 they're ready to go Interesting. Now, I, I
2: understand they're using masks.
4: That's Yeah, I mean, we're still in the development phases. What we say we need to do is we need to try and capture the odor of this disease. Now, of course, it's the COVID-19 is the disease that the coronavirus causes in the body. We want to, we want to collect these volatiles that the person is, is, is producing in their breath and sweat. But what we want to do is collect it on something that can then be safely treated so that then can come to the dog in a way that, where the, that the virus is dead. Now, we're looking at various ways, but certainly masks are one of the ways that we're thinking that we can really capture a lot of breath volatiles.
3: I'm still back thinking about the vineyards. Doesn't that sound good, Charlie?
4: <laughs> <laughs> you
3: got on that. <laughs> so, so, so Dr. Guest, so what specifically trained medical detection dogs, how can they really be helping the solution for, for this crisis?
4: But what we know is, don't we? That we're all, you know, in lockdown at the moment, but gradually coming out now. There's, uh, you know, a huge resource being put into testing, and you know, we've got to know who's got the virus and who's had the virus. But as we know, you know, this is these are, these are big numbers. Now, when we are moving forward and we're, you know, uh, going sort of back to whatever the next normality will be we'll start to transport, we'll start to move again. And that will include transport from other countries. Now, what we need to do, if a flight is coming in from a hot spot, from a country that has perhaps, um, is in a different stage of the disease process than we are, and perhaps has a number of uh, cases passing around rapidly, as they come off the aircraft, we need to be able to uh, isolate them quickly and know which people have the virus. Now, bear in mind, of course, that if you're talking about people who have symptoms, that's quite straightforward. And of course, as we know, this virus for up to five days, a person can be without symptoms, either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. The dogs will be able to sniff, a 0.5 of a second sniff and we'll be able to indicate immediately which people coming off an aircraft need to be uh, tested and isolated rapidly. And, of course, they love it as well. I mean, a lot of our dogs are rescue dogs. They stay with foster homes and volunteer homes and trainers, come in in the morning, do their work with their, with their doggy pals, and then feet up on the sofa in the evening. So it's a, it's a win-win.
3: It really is. not Dr. Guest, what wonderful information, and thanks for joining us today. We, we really appreciate all the work that you are doing as a two-legged member, and we're concerned about <laughs> the four-legged members of your team. Yeah. And we're going to keep watching and and just want want to watch your progress. We know it's going to benefit all of mankind.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully you'll come back in a few months and tell us your progress is going.
4: I'd love to. And thank you very much for your support and interest.
2: Well, everyone, that was Dr. Claire Guest, CEO of the Medical Detection Dogs, discussing training dogs to sniff out the novel coronavirus. Please visit her website at medicaldetectiondogs.org.uk. And if you can make a donation, please do so, because we are in a race to save lives and economies against this deadly virus. Up next, celebrity pet gossip and flex facts, so stay tuned. I'm pet expert Charlotte Reed, and I want to remind you how important it is to protect your pet against fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes with preventative tablets and topicals. By giving your dogs and cats preventative meds throughout the year, you are protecting your pet from Lyme disease, heartworm, flea allergies, worms, and more, causing unwanted and costly vet bills. Most importantly, these parasites can infiltrate your home, causing you and your family's health to be compromised. Remember.
3: Healthy pet, healthy you. When your doctor recommended omega fatty acids as a daily supplement, he told you that they promoted better heart, brain, skin, joint, and immune system health. Well, doesn't it make sense for your pet to have the same health benefits? EpiPet Whole Fish Treat, an all natural smoked fish supplement, is 100% bioavailable, bringing your pets the nutrients they need to keep them healthy and happy.
5: We first heard about EpiPet at our local rescue shelter where our family adopted Lucy, a 10 year old yellow lab. She was in tough shape, but we noticed within just a few days how soft and thick her coat was getting. She has more energy now, loves to chase her favorite tennis ball. And most importantly, how happy and healthy Lucy is now. We could not be happier. Thanks, Thanks, EpiPet.
3: To order better pet health for your dog or cat, just visit epi-pet.com. That's epi-pet.com.
2: Thank you so much for joining the Pet Buzz. This show is hosted by the Pet Dynamic Duo. I'm Pet Chondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm
3: veterinarian, Dr. Michael Fleck.
2: Well, have you guys signed up for the newsletter at newsletter at thepetbuzz.com? We want to continue bringing you more Pet Buzz to you and your 4 legged members. So sign up now so you can keep in contact with Dr. Fleck and myself and what we're up to. Let's move on with celebrity pet news. Well, you know, while I was perusing the Internet to bring you your weekly dose of celebrity pet news, I stumbled across a picture of Heidi Klum and her family on people.com. If you didn't know Heidi Cl- if you don't know who Heidi Klum is. She's a supermodel and the creator of TV show Project Runway and the new show Making the Cut. Well, Klum is known as the Queen of Halloween because she's famous for this humongo Halloween party she throws, where I am known as the Queen of Halloween. Just wanted to clarify that. Well, last week, Klum shared an intense photo of her whole family, husband and four kids, including her two dogs, Chipu, and their recently adopted Anton, who's an Irish wolfhound that she adopted last August on National Dog Day. Well, the whole family is trying to find ways to stay active while social distancing amid the novel coronavirus. Well, anyway, the family went hiking and the short of it is the photo kind of looks down on the viewer. It's kind of a really intense photo. So the photo is like super eerie, but in a way it's really beautiful. Klum and her husband and her kids look so intense while they're all wearing face masks. So you see these really intense eyes pop from everyone, including the dogs. They all look very serious. And the photo kind of represents the new normal. I mean, getting outside with the dogs is one of the top five activity for families during social distancing. Exercising allows kids and dogs to burn energy and the heart health benefits for grown-ups are great too. Additionally, expert research links exposure to sunshine with a boost in serotonin levels the feel good hormone in the brain. So maybe the simple act of getting into the sunlight can improve everyone's mood while you're living all together. All I can say is once you guys as a family get out and go for a dog walk. Okay, and now what you've been waiting for, Flex Facts.
5: Welcome to Just the Facts.
6: Just the Facts. Fact or fiction. Just the Facts, ma'am.
5: You want answers. I want the
6: truth. It's going to take long. you got the time.
3: Dr. Fleck, what are we going to talk about today? Let's talk about ear hematomas. You do a lot of those ear hematomas. I do too many. What is an ear hematoma? An ear hematoma is blood collected under the skin of a dog's ear flap. They can occur in cats, but it is more common in dogs.
2: Okay, because I've never seen you do uh, canine. I've seen you do canine hematomas, but I've never seen you do the feline. I'd hematomas. say maybe
3: ten percent of the ear hematomas are in cats.
2: Okay, so what causes these hematomas?
3: The tissue of the ear flap is very thin. The ears if the ear is injured, blood vessels that are cushionless in the ear, flap, will break. And that'll fill the area between the ear cartilage and the skin with blood. This causes the ear to swell. The swelling can occur very quickly, within minutes of the blood vessel breaking.
2: Now I understand allergies, ear mites, ear infections bites can really contribute to ear hematomas, too. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, itching is a big culprit, but usually the ear hematoma is a result of just trauma to the ear, which is often self-caused through scratching or shaking of the head.
2: Okay, great.
3: So, go you, ahead. you want some more?
2: Yeah, give me some just more.
3: Let's give you give some more.
2: Give me some. We Slap said, your mama
3: good. Okay. So, the allergies, <laughs> ear mites, ear infections... Bites to the area or something stuck in the ear, which isn't very common, but but those kinds of conditions are commonly found along with a ear hematoma.
2: Okay, so what should you look for? What should you suspect if you think your dog has an ear
3: hematoma? It's pretty obvious. You'll see the huge swelling of the ear flap. Um,
2: it's thick it's when th- you touch it.
3: It Well, it, it's, it's, it, thick. It's, it's thick, but it feels like fluid inside. Yeah. Like you're feeling a balloon. Uh-huh. So, and it may be painful or it may not be painful uh, to the touch.
2: So, are they serious? I mean, should you panic if your
3: dog has one? Well, let's leave it this way. Hematomas are a medical condition with pain or discomfort, and potentially a serious infection may be present. So, yes, it may require veterinary attention.
2: Okay, so what's the proper treatment for one?
3: The best way to for treatment of course is at the veterinary office. Uh-huh. Surgical repair is the primary treatment approach and surgical techniques will vary from veterinary office to veterinary okay, office. Okay,
2: but I have a question. Is this a minor treatment or a major treatment?
3: Well, let's just say it involves a surgical repair. So sometimes that can be minor, sometimes that may be considered serious. Consider that the blood in in the that that is in the hematoma acts as a culture media for bacteria. So it could develop into something more serious, like being an abscess. Okay, or do you have to be put under? Does your dog have to be put under for one? The pet is generally put under general anesthetic. Okay. Not just sedation, but general anesthetic. Okay. And it involves an incision to drain the blood from the ear. Okay. The skin is then sutured to the underlying cartilage which then will help prevent any further hemorrhaging. Okay. The vet will also treat the pet for any of those underlying conditions, okay. such as we've already mentioned.
2: Like ear mites, infections, or clogged ear canals. Okay. So are there certain breeds that are a greater risk for ear dog ear hematomas?
3: Oh, yeah. The dogs with the floppy ears that hang down are a great risk for hematomas. Okay. When they shake their heads, the ears go along for the ride which that can really cause trauma and cause the blood vessels to break. Okay. Labradors, golden retrievers, Dalmatians, beagles, basset hounds, and cocker spaniels, all floppy-eared dogs, right? Are a few of the droopy-eared breeds prone to this condition? Additionally, dogs who have frequent ear infections or other chronic ear problems are also at a high risk. But really, any dog can develop a hematoma or a cat can develop the hematoma. Right. For example... Ear mites can cause a hematoma or present the conditions that a hematoma can come about.
2: Because the dog's always scratching.
3: Because he's scratching or shaking the head.
2: Okay. So anyway, Dr. Fleck, what's the best way to prevent a
3: hematoma? The best way to prevent your four-legged friend from developing a dog or cat ear hematoma is to just monitor its health. When the when conducting the canine weekly or bimonthly cleanings, Make sure you check the ears for discharge or debris. And if you have your dog checked out, if it scratches or is shaking its head, as frequently as that would happen with your veterinarian.
2: Okay, great. Anything else, Dr. Flex?
3: That's all the Flex facts for the week. Okay, great.
2: Well, stick around. More of the Pet Buzz very soon. Bet you can't wait for my I you of the Week.
3: Sure, I'm a little rough and tough.
1: Somebody's got to me. I like the outdoors. Camping, boating, riding in your truck with my head out the window. Yeah, I'll poop outside. Doesn't everyone?
0: A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Warmer temperatures mean more time outside. You have sunscreen for yourself, but what about Fido? According to the American Animal Hospital Association and the American College of Veterinary Dermatology, pets need sunscreen, too.
3: I love two things, sports and my dog Chester. Where I go, he goes. To the beach, to play soccer, everywhere. We spend a lot of time together in the sun, so I always carry a can of EpiPet sunscreen. So Chester is protected from the sun's harmful UV rays. I just spray it on and I don't have to worry. Chester is protected, so I know my sports buddies can be with me for a long time. Thanks, EpiPet. EpiPet.
0: Use EpiPet Sun Protector, the only FDA-approved pet sunscreen on short-haired, light-colored, hairless, golden retrievers, and other dogs susceptible to skin cancer. Contained in a sports bottle, EpiPet allows you to turn the bottle upside down, making it easier to spray your dog all over to protect your dog from the sun all day and every day. Visit epi
2: Welcome back. You are listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio.
3: I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck.
2: And I'm petrendologist Charlotte Reed. And now for my I likey of the Week. That's
3: the way it has to be because that's the way I
5: like it. It's genius.
0: I like it. I so I
5: like it. It's the die for. I like
2: it. Nina Audison is one of the most innovative geniuses of the pet products world according to many dog psychologists and canine trainers around the world she is one of the best at developing and designing educational activity puzzle games for dogs and other animals she pioneered this category of pet products more than 25 years ago and is still going strong Nina developed puzzle toys while trying to keep her Bouvier stimulated while she was pregnant so recently she's developed puzzle and play toys for cats Prices range from 19.99 to 24.99, and they're available right now as of April 2020. And released by Outward Hound, the three puzzle toys for cats are just as great as Nina's Canine line. The pegs glide smoothly across the tracks, and the flaps will easily oblige the most timid cat's paw. That's not to say these puzzles don't require some serious problem-solving capabilities. But if your cat likes a challenge, I recommend you checking these cat toys out. So let's move on with our next guest who is anxiously awaiting a conversation about Lyme disease. Well, joining us today to talk about this study is Dr. Michael Yabsley, an Associate Professor of Wildlife Diseases at the College of Veterinary Medicine and the Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources, University of Georgia, where he is active in teaching parasitology, wildlife diseases, and wildlife techniques. Dr. Yabsley. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pet Buzz. Can you tell us why Lyme disease is such a problem for people as well as pets?
5: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, Lyme disease is one of the many different tick-borne pathogens that we have in people and pets here in the United States. And it's, in fact, one of the most common ones that are diagnosed uh, in people. There are easily uh, 30,000 or more cases every year in people, and, and a lot of dogs also test positive for it. Uh, the ticks that transmit Borrelia that causes Lyme disease will get on people and our pets um, equally well, and we often go out and walk with our pets, and so we're sharing the same environment. So we're both exposed to the ticks as well as uh, the pathogens they transmit. Lyme disease is particularly important for human health. It causes a variety of different ailments in people, uh, and while a lot of dogs don't necessarily get sick from Lyme disease, uh, some of them do. Um, and exposure to Lyme shows that they have exposure to ticks. And because of that exposure, they may actually be infected with other tick-borne pathogens that could be very important for the health of those dogs.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned 30,000 because I, I assumed, uh, according to the CDC, that that number would be a little higher. But I would assume if you have cases that go unreported, correct?
5: Correct, yeah. Under, underreporting is a huge problem with Lyme disease in people. And so the thirty to 40,000 or so uh, annual cases are those that are uh, confirmed. And then it's estimated that easily 10 times or more uh, cases go unreported. So you'll see numbers out there as high as three hundred to 400,000 cases a year in humans. Wow. So e- either way you look at it, it's a huge problem.
2: Now, is there a correlation in Lyme disease and pets and people? I mean, do we notice that as more pets get Lyme disease, then in turn people will get Lyme disease in a given area?
5: Yes. There's a number of studies that have actually looked at that, and we recently published a a large study uh, using data from the Companion Animal Parasite Council looking at that very question. And essentially what we were looking at is at a county level, we looked to see how many dogs had exposure to Lyme disease, and then we compared that to human cases from the CDC. And, in fact, we did see an increasing uh, correlation between those two. So in counties where you had dog exposure, you were likely to see human infections as well. And as prevalence or the number of infected dogs increased, the number of human uh, cases increased as well.
2: So that also, that study with a companion animal parasite counselor, CAPC, tell us a little bit more about the study and other revelations and why it's important to pets and pet owners.
5: Yeah, so since 2012, CAPC um, has been providing data on exposure of dogs to several different tick-borne pathogens, um, as well as heartworms, another important parasite that's transmitted by mosquitoes. Um, and so these maps are available on our website, and uh, I'm a board member of CAPC, and I work with some statisticians and mathematicians at Clemson, as well as uh, a couple of other parasitologists, and we analyze those data looking for the distribution of the parasites um, and whether or not those parasite numbers are increasing in dog populations. And then we can use those data to create maps that alert people at a local scale in near real time where these different pathogens are occurring and where their dogs may be at risk of exposure.
2: Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Dr. Michael Yabsley from University of Georgia, who manages a diverse research program that focuses on natural history of zoonotic parasites and wildlife diseases with an interest in tick-borne pathogens. So when you created this forecasting map, talk a little bit of it as a model, like what contributing factors went into a design and then who is using this model?
5: So there's a bunch of different factors that are uh, used to essentially look at whether or not we can predict infections are occurring in dogs, things like habitat, density of people, Um, but most importantly, just simply diagnostic data from dogs themselves. So when you take your dog in for an annual exam and they do a test to see if they have heartworm or if they've been exposed to one of these tick-borne pathogens, we obtain those data from select areas. And we're able to look to see if there are any changing trends in those parasites in that area. And since we have data from 2012 all the way up to current, we can look at these long-term trends at the local level and determine whether or not infections are likely to occur at a lower or higher rate in the next month, for example, or even the next year. We're actually able to forecast in the future, generally, if we expect transmission to increase or decrease in a given area.
2: Does that model also take into consideration weather patterns? Because I know weather and parasites kind of work together. I guess that's the best way I can put it, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah,
5: climate's certainly very important. So if you have milder winters, you may um, have more tick activity earlier in the year. Um, these models take that into account to a degree, but it relies more so on historic data And so it goes back to previous years, but it also looks back at previous months. And so if the previous month was higher than normal compared to previous years, then you would expect the next month to potentially be higher as well.
2: I think one of the things that I found interesting about the recent study is the fact that we're seeing an increase in Lyme disease in various areas across the country or around the country that we normally haven't seen it. What areas are those? Can you tell us?
5: Yeah, so there's a number of areas in the mid-Atlantic uh, and upper Midwestern states that are seeing increasing trends for Borrelia exposure of dogs, places like Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia in particular, um, but there are other states like Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota that are also seeing increases, and so that's an indication that we are seeing more transmission of Lyme to dogs in those areas, and likely we'll see that in people as well. But one important thing that came out of that study was that even in the highly endemic areas like New York, Pennsylvania, the you know northeastern states, we're also seeing increases in those areas as well. So uh, it's important for people to remember that just because you live in an area where you've known to, ha- to have it in the past, you may actually be seeing more of it now.
2: Well, I'm going to ask you one last question, since you're an outdoors guy yourself. What's the number one rule? if you're deciding to leave your sheltering in place and go out and about in the great outdoors?
5: Just take some basic tick precautions. And so there's lots of products available for animals that can repel and kill ticks. Um, There's a number of different products that you can use on yourself and your children to help repel ticks. But then when you come home, just do a quick tick check, jump in the shower, throw your clothes in the dryer, uh, and that will help prevent any ticks from attaching to you that may not have attached yet. um, And just be a bit
2: aware great information and great advice thank you so much for joining us today that was dr michael yabsley associate professor of the wildlife diseases at the college of veterinary medicine and the warnell school of forestry and natural resources university of georgia discussing which parts of the country are most at risk of lyme disease infection in dogs up next we're talking about animal testing for covid19
3: I want to be a contender. I want a warm belly to sleep on. A
5: big house.
3: How do I look? Do do I look good?
5: I want to play hard. My nails done. Once a month.
3: I want.
4: I want. I want a home. I just want a home. I want someone to love.
5: Last year, more than 30,000 companion animals came to us without homes. 20,000 of them were felines. Let's make some homes.
0: A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? EpiPet to the rescue. Developed by a veterinarian, EpiPet is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPet, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, visit epi-pet.com.
2: I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And as I always love to say at this part of the show, we're urban, suburban, and country. I just want to make sure that you have signed up for our newsletter at newsletter at petbuzz.com. This way you can keep in touch with me and Dr. Fleck, find out what we're doing and what's coming on the, what is going to be happening on the upcoming shows. So let's kick off this segment with Global
0: Pet News. And now, Pet Buzz News from around the globe.
2: Last week, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the United States Department of Agriculture's National Veterinary Service Laboratories announced the first confirmed cases of COVID-19 infection in two pet cats who live in two separate areas of New York State. Now, these are the first pets in the United States to test positive for SARS-CoV. CoV2. Now a dog in North Carolina, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina has tested positive for COVID-19. SARS-CoV2 infections have been reported in very few animals worldwide, mostly in those homes that had people who had close contact with a person who had the covid-19 virus so in the new york cases a veterinary tested the first cat after it showed mild respiratory signs no individuals in that household were confirmed to be ill with covid-19 so the virus may have been transmitted to this cat by a mildly ill or asymptomatic household member or through contact with an infected person outside the home Samples from the second cat were taken after it showed signs of respiratory illness. The owner of that cat tested positive for COVID-19 prior to the cat showing signs. Now, in that second home, another cat in the household showed no signs of the illness. Now, in the canine house in North Carolina, the majority of members of that house tested positive for the virus. So public health officials are still learning about COVID-19 the new Val Coronavirus, but there is no evidence that pets play a role in spreading the virus in the United States. Therefore, there is no justification in taking measures against companion animals that may compromise their welfare. But the CDC, now I want to talk about the CDC, recommends the following. Do not let pets interact with people or other animals outside the household. You got to keep your cats indoors whenever possible to prevent them from interacting with animals or people. Walk dogs on a leash, maintaining, you know, obviously six feet social distancing. Avoid dog parks or other public places where a large number of people gather. Now, we've been telling you this for way back. I want to say I'm going to sound like Sean Hannity. We've been telling you that for the last six weeks. okay? so if you are sick with COVID-19 or you suspect that you have it, restrict contact with your pets and other animals just like you would do around people. When possible, have another member of your household care for your pets while you're sick. Avoid contact with your pet, including petting, snuggling, being kissed or licked, and sharing food or bedding. If you must care for your pet or be around animals when you are sick, wear a face cloth covering and wash your hands before and after you interact with your pet. While well, additionally, animals may test positive as infections continue in people, it is important to note that performing this animal testing does not reduce the availability of tests for humans. Very, very important. Okay, so now I want to bring on our next guest because we do know that obviously animals are now testing positive for coronavirus cats in New York State, as I just said, and this pug named Winston from North Carolina. But with so many people sick, should we be testing animals and pets, especially pet owners who have tested positive for coronavirus? So joining us today to talk about testing animals and pets for COVID-19 is Texas A&M AgriLife expert, veterinarian, Dr. Bruce Akey, the director of Texas A&M's Veterinary Medical Diagnostic Laboratory. Dr. Akey is a nationally recognized leader in veterinary diagnostics. Dr. Akey, thank you so much for joining us on the Pet Bus today.
6: Hi, I'm glad to be here as well. Hope you're having a good day.
2: I'm great. Okay, so we have heard about, in the very beginning, about the Pomeranian and the other dogs in Hong Kong, as well as cats in Brussels, all of whom have tested positive for coronavirus. Now we have animals and pets, you know, the big cats from the Bronx Zoo, two pet cats from upstate New York, and now the dog in Chapel Hill in this country. What we want to know is, is testing done differently in Europe than it is in the United States? And then can you tell us a little bit about what the procedure is for testing animals for COVID-19.
6: Sure. So I don't think the testing is really any different in Europe than it is here in the United States. And in, in both cases, we're all using a same kind of a test. It's uh, what we call a molecular test. And uh, so it, it it is the same kind of testing, and it actually doesn't matter what species uh, you're testing in, whether it's a cat, dog, or a human, because the test is aimed at the uh, virus itself. So that doesn't really matter. And uh, as far as how the tests are conducted, again, I think they're pretty much the same, whether it's pets and uh, whether it's humans and whether it's in Europe or here. Everybody's using a swab, you know, either up the nose, down the throat, or in the case of animals, sometimes a, a rectal swab as well. Um, So it's pretty much the same kind of testing.
2: So, you know, one of the problems that we're seeing now with human testing is faulty testing. Do we have that problem with this type of molecular testing for animals?
6: I don't think so. Um, The molecular testing has has been uh, what we call validated uh, very extensively, uh, looking to make sure it doesn't cross react or pick up uh, something that it's not supposed to pick up, but also verifying that it's sensitive enough to pick up the the thing that you're targeting, the, like the coronavirus, if it is in fact there. So for the molecular tests, uh, I don't think there's uh, that much of an issue. I think it's been more of an issue from what I've uh, seen and heard so far with some of the early attempts at antibody testing.
2: Okay. So under what circumstances should we be testing pets?
6: Well, both the CDC and the American Vet Med Association, um, they they have a joint uh, uh, approach to this. And right now, they're only suggesting or, or yeah, strongly suggesting that testing for animals happen if there's a known exposure of the animals to a human case of the COVID-19 virus. And in part, that's because uh, so far it appears that the only way the animals are getting infected with this is by exposure to an infected human. And it's being transmitted from humans to animals and not the other way around.
2: You know, I'm glad that you brought that up. So I guess you're saying err on the side of caution with your expectations when you go to the vet and the vet will run some other ancillary tests. So be prepared for that. It, the bill might get a little expensive because he's not going to necessarily go right out and test for COVID-19. Correct. Correct.
6: Yeah, bottom line is you want to know what's causing your animal's problem. And um, you know, the veterinarian is, is going to talk with you, is going to assess the animal, uh, hands-on assess the animal, and they're going to make a determination of what the most likely causes are. And unless you walk in there as an owner and say, hey, somebody in my household has a confirmed case of COVID-19, the veterinarian's probably going to start with the things that are most likely to cause your, your pet, your pet's a distress. Um, other viruses, other bacteria, uh, asthma, whatever the case may be. They're going to start there because at the end of the day, you want to know what's causing your pet's problem and, uh, you want to spend your money wisely. So does your veterinarian. So they're going to work their way through the most likely suspects first to make sure that they do get a, a diagnosis for what's causing the problem.
2: Well, Dr. Aiky, thank you so much for joining us today. You have such great insight, and we appreciate your sharing with us and helping to ask some of the common questions that pet owners right now need to know. So we appreciate that.
6: My pleasure. I hope everybody stays healthy out there and uh, maintain that social distancing. We're all in this together.
2: And that's true. We are all in this together. And everyone, you should know that was veterinarian Dr. Bruce Akey, the director of the Texas A&M Veterinary Medical Diagnostic Laboratory discussing animal testing protocol for the coronavirus. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. So unfortunately, it's time to wrap the show. But before we go... We want you to give you a preview for next week's show. So next week, we're going to talk about cat food that helps produce less cat allergens, Puppy Mill Action Week, as well as news updates about the coronavirus. You know, here at The Pet Buzz, we want to keep you in the know about COVID-19, how it affects you and your pets. So each week, make sure you listen to us. For this show, we want to give special thanks to Dr. Claire Guest, Dr. Michael Yabsley, and Dr. Bruce Achey. And of course, we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin coat and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. Now, if you have a question, write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com and we'll cover it on next week's show. I always tell you every week, send us pictures of your pets. We would love to see what they look like. And if you've missed any portion of this show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channels and listen to the linked podcast on Monday morning. But most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love.
1: Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed, and Dr. Michael Fleck. Tune in each week for the latest 411 on everything pet related. Visit our website at
3: www.thepetbuzz.com.
1: Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.